Uh, tonight we're continuing uh, the Gospel of Luke and um, the, the um, birth narrative of Jesus that we find there. Uh, and you'll notice that on the whole around here that uh, we take kind of a passage a week and unpack it. Um, not all churches do that. Uh, and the, reasons, the biggest reason uh, that I do that for you guys is because it's very much training you how to read your Bible yourself uh, all the rest of the week. Um, that if you want to know how to read the Bible, the worst approach is to just wake up tomorrow morning or before you go to bed tonight and just open up to some random page and read a chapter. Tomorrow, you open up your Bible and open up to some random page and read a chapter. Uh, you, you will uh, miss uh, very uh, large sections of the scripture and it'll probably be really hard to understand because you don't really know where you're at. Uh, but if you read things continuously, you'll begin to kind of get the flow of the narrative. Uh, you, there's still plenty of helps to help you get the historical background or whatever, but uh, this very much kind of gets you in a groove of uh, taking a text, really meditating on it, and finding things there. Uh, God wants to feed you all week long. That's part of the reason we've had these Advent readings. Um, I don't know if we've got any out tonight, but I think they might have all gotten taken last week. Uh, but we came with these Advent readings for us to read a passage of the New Testament and Old Testament uh, during the month of December uh, on your own. Yeah, so that the only place that you're not stopping by and getting filled is uh, here at church on Sundays at 5. Uh, but the Word of God is really active all the time. <laughs> that the Spirit lives inside of you. He's not just present here. He's also present with you wherever you go. Uh, this is a powerful place for you to meet with the Lord, but you can meet with the Lord wherever. And um, you can do that through His Word. So that's why we do this. This is why we stopped in verse 38 last week and we're beginning in verse 39 this week. In fact, we're kind of overlapping a little bit, getting a little risky. So... Um, that's why we're in Luke 1. Let me pray uh, before we get started. Uh, Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, where would we be uh, without your word? Um, Lord, I pray that we would, uh, that we would see um, beyond this book uh, to you. Lord, that we would see you, the, uh, uh, our Savior, in these very words. Lord, that you are active and you want to apply your grace to us even now. So, Lord, would you do that? Uh, would you meet us uh, where we find ourselves in our lives in this text from Luke chapter 1? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, we usually work life backwards, don't we? Um, I mean, in terms of like cause and effect, it's really, really uh, hard in almost every area of your life to be able to know the cause of something unless you know the effect. Uh, I'll, let me give you a few examples. Here's some negative ones. Um, uh, maybe you've discovered that you have a gluten allergy. If you discovered you had a gluten allergy, it's not because you woke up one morning and uh, you had celiac uh, written across uh, your forehead. That's not what happened. Uh, what started happening is that in your life, uh, things got a little funky on you, um, that your body began to behave in ways it hadn't always behaved. You had some symptoms, you wanted to find out the cause, and so you went to the doctor. Uh, diabetes. You don't wake up with diabetes written across your forehead. You begin to have the symptoms. They usually are something like an increased thirst, um, uh, increased hunger, um, uh, a sudden loss of weight, um, headaches. And you want to know, why are all these things happening? They haven't always gone on with me. You go to the doctor, they run the test, and you find out the cause of all these symptoms, and it's diabetes. Maybe it's your car. Recently, uh, we've had some weird things go on with, in, in our van uh, where the, the, uh, the dash lights are dimming on and off. 
Uh, what we have found out is that we have a bad alternator. We need to find the cause for why that is happening. Maybe for you, you've had uh, the worst of all diagnosis at the mechanic, and you had kind of a, your car was kind of running herky jerky. Uh, you find out that it's your training positions, and a few thousand dollars later, you had your car working again. Uh, maybe it's your house. Maybe you begin to find cracks in your walls, your floors begin to slope, your windows won't open and close properly. What's the cause? You find out that you have foundation issues. And man, that really stinks. Uh, that's why renting is awesome. Uh, it's because you can't have foundation issues and you get stuck with the bill. These are all depressing. So let me give you some positive ones. How do you know you're dealing with a healthy tree? Well, you begin, you know you're dealing with a healthy tree when you have strong bark where it doesn't, uh, where it doesn't peel off. You know you've got a healthy tree when you see new growth coming from the limbs. You know you've got a healthy tree when the leaves are abundant. Those are the symptoms of a healthy tree. How about a healthy dog? I thought th this was hilarious. Uh, I know nothing about dogs. I, I, I wouldn't say I hate dogs, but I've got a I've got a thing that I'm not crazy about them. Um, you can hate me later. Um, but I found out that dogs are healthy when they've got fresh breath, uh, when they've got kind of a clean and shiny coat, uh, when they have consistent lean weight, when they're alert and engaged, when they have clean and odor-free ears. Those are signs of a healthy dog, and um, maybe many of those aren't true for you today, uh, many of those symptoms, so I'm glad those aren't signs of a healthy human. Um, that's a healthy dog, but you get the point. So much of your life is unclear. You don't know the causes for all the symptoms that are going on. How do you know if your children are healthy? How do you know your marriage is healthy? How do you know your dating relationship is healthy? How do you know uh, that your friendship is healthy? It's really tough. That's why we're drawn to blog titles that say something like marriage happiness, seven signs that your relationship will last, because we want life to be less blurry. Now, you enter the realm of the divine. You get into theology. You get into this God stuff, and it's equally hard work. It's very subjective. But the good news is, is that the scriptures give us some help. The birth narrative of Jesus here in Luke chapter 1 gives us some snapshots of what it looks like when Jesus enters the equation. When Jesus is in your life, what are the signs, what are the marks of Jesus being there? If Jesus is the cause, then what are the effects? Well, that's what we see in Luke chapter 1. So let's read it together. And Mary said, Behold, <coughs> I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The word of the Lord. What we see in this passage are three figures. Uh, you see Mary, you see Elizabeth, and you see John. In Mary, you're going to see the mark of faith. 
In John, you're going to see the mark of joy. And in Elizabeth, you're going to see the mark of humility. And the same is true for us. When we know that Jesus has come on the scene in our lives, then faith, joy, and humility are present in us. They are symptoms. They are marks. They are signs of which, of which Jesus is the cause. Let's look at Mary first. Let's look at faith. Uh, in the previous passage, what we looked at last week, uh, we saw that Mary received this very surprising announcement that she was going to give birth to God, even though she was a virgin. And she responded in the last verse of the passage we looked at last week with verse 38. In verse 38, look at it. She says, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be unto me according to your word. You see what happens here. She's passive. She receives this word. She didn't ask for this privilege. She wasn't given this promise that if she met certain conditions and then this promise would come true. She just responds with faith. Pure and simple faith. That's a really good example of the way in which we come to faith. Jesus just shows up. He takes residence in us. We weren't asked. We weren't given any conditions. And here he is. And as I read uh, this passage, we got, I, really, I remembered um, my friend Chris. Uh, Chris was in our fellowship for a while. Um, Chris moved to Colorado, and um, I met Chris when uh, he was a freshman in college. Um, I was working for a campus ministry, and uh, one of the things that we did during freshman orientation is that we had all these events where we would meet freshmen. And uh, one of them we just called field games. That wasn't anything real special. Uh, we played uh, some ultimate frisbee, uh, flag football, uh, volleyball, soccer. I mean, just that kind of stuff. I, I wouldn't play. I didn't want to sweat. And... Um, Chris came as a freshman, and he had been a soccer player all growing up, and so he comes with his cleats, and he plays soccer, and everybody who came, we put out there that, you know, we, our campus ministry meeting happened on Wednesdays in the student center in room 211. Uh, we'd love for you to come out. Well, Chris really hadn't grown up uh, much around the church or anything uh, like the campus ministry that uh, I, I was a part of, and he just showed up that Wednesday night in student center, room 211, and he had those soccer bags that all soccer players have. They had the drawstring at the top, you know what I'm talking about, the nylon bags. And in them, he had cleats because he thought he was showing up to a soccer meeting. And uh, what he wasn't expecting is that he was going to show up to a campus ministry meeting where we sang a couple songs and I got up and talked from the Bible about Jesus. And within those first few weeks, Chris had become a Christian. He'd come to faith. That's the last thing he was looking for when he was a freshman. That's the last thing he thought he was going to show up at when he brought cleats to our meeting. And for many of us, isn't that how you came to faith too? It was a surprise to you. You weren't asking for it. It was completely passive on your part. But not long after faith is passive, it gets active very quickly. You see verse 39. She receives, she receives this word passively and in verse 39. It says that Mary arose and went with haste. It means that she was in a hurry to go where she was going. And where she had to go, she was going from Nazareth to a town in Judah. And that was anywhere from 80 to 100 miles away. She's this newly pregnant 12 to 14 year old girl. And she goes on a three day journey to go visit her cousin, Elizabeth. So you see that her faith has taken on this energy, this dynamism, this spryness. 
even though her faith became, began as something very passive. See, our faith, it becomes active as we begin to live this new life of love and adventure with God. And Martin Luther, he says this, he says, works are necessary for salvation, but they do not cause salvation. For faith alone gives life. Faith alone justifies, but a justified person with faith alone would be a monstrosity which never exists in the kingdom of grace, end quote. Did you catch that? What he's saying is that our good works accompany our faith as an expression of our gratitude for the glorious work that God did in Christ. That's impossible for our faith to only and always be passive. That's how it starts, but it gets moving quickly. But for all of us, we all fall off this proverbial horse of a passive faith and an active faith in two ways. We confuse this relationship between faith and works. You confuse their proper order, and sometimes we think it goes something like this. If I do good stuff, then God will bless me. But that sees works as the cause of God's grace, and it's called legalism, friends, and it's a heresy. It is anti-grace. It is anti-faith. This is, this is the older brother and the prodigal son. This is the Pharisees throughout the Gospels. But you can fall off the proverbial horse on the other side, too. When you fall off on the other side, it's not called legalism. It's called antinomianism. That's a huge word. You probably haven't used it this week. But let me tell you what it means. Anti means no. Nome is short for namas, which means law, and ism means a belief. So it's the belief in no law. It's the belief that effort isn't a part of the Christian life. These are people who are anti-rules, anti-obedience, anti-law, that faith is only passive. It's only verse 38 and nothing in verse 39. See, friends, this is the younger brother and the prodigal son. These are the Christians in Corinth that Paul writes to. So the question remains for us, which side of the horse do you fall off on? If you fall off on the side of legalism, then part of your life probably includes boredom, a lack of effort, a resignation to the current state of your own heart. That's, I'm sorry, that's not legalism. That's antinomianism. If you're bored, if you lack effort, if you've resigned to the current state of your heart, you're an antinomian. But on the other side, if you're a legalist, that anxiety, judgmentalism, and a commitment to principles, those are telltale signs that you're a legalist. And Mary here gives us the perfect model, at least at this snapshot in her life, of how to combine them both. She marries these two things. May it be done to me, according to your word, passive, with, went with haste. And the combination is electric. And this is what Jesus is always up to with me and you. 
But with all that said, let me be very clear. This doesn't mean that the Christian life, the active life of obedience is without its ups and downs or that it's without difficulty or that for the rest of Mary's day that she got it perfect. There's no way that she got it perfect. A, because she's a human being. <laughs> she did carry uh, the, 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 the son of God. But think about the things that she had to go through. Not long after Jesus was born, she had to take her newborn baby along with her husband, Joseph, and the three of them had to flee to Egypt. Why? Because Herod was killing all the newborn Jewish males. It's hard for me to believe that she didn't wane off either side. Think about the way that she had to process her son being misunderstood throughout his public ministry. Hard for me to say that she didn't struggle with anxiety and judgmentalism or that she was only committed to principles. Think about how she had to process her own son's death. So this life of faith, this life of active obedience that flows out of a passive reception of God's grace. It's not one that's filled with uninterrupted victory. It's not one that's filled with uninterrupted certainty. It's not one that's filled with ease. But it is one that's filled with joy. Do you see that in verse 41 and 44? This mark, this evidence of, of Jesus being present in your life, we see this joy. 41, uh, we see that John leaps in Elizabeth's womb. Now, John's six months. He's a six-month fetus at this point. Uh, he's probably about two pounds probably about 12 inches long. And this isn't just a normal kind of kick in the ribs that moms receive during their pregnancy. This is a leap for joy. And that's what you see in verse 44. Do you see at the very end of 44, it says, the baby in my womb leap for joy. So Elizabeth knew this wasn't just some ordinary movement within her belly. And in our passage, we see these two formidable duos. You see Elizabeth and Mary on one side, and you see John and Jesus on the other. Elizabeth and Mary, they're cousins. One's uh, advanced in years, and Mary's 12 to 14 years old. And what they have in common is that they both miraculously conceive. Mary conceives from the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth conceives in the midst of her barrenness. And these two boys would grow up to both be key figures in God's plan of redemption. John, John the Baptist, was going to be the foreteller of Jesus. He was going to be the one who would tell anybody who would listen that the Messiah is on his way. And that's what he did. And the very first time that he sets his eyes on Jesus, this is the first time he's in the presence of Jesus. The first time he's in the presence of Jesus is right here. But the first time he sets his eyes on Jesus, in John chapter 1, verse 29, he says this, Behold, the Son of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. He's exclaiming this with joy. He's the one who leaps in utero here in Luke chapter 1. But this wouldn't always be the case because in Matthew 3, verse 14, John the Baptist asked Jesus a question. Here's what he says. He says, Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another He asked this question because Jesus wasn't living up to his expectations. Jesus was bringing this kingdom in a humble way, in a way that didn't include military force. 
But John expected him to come with power. And so this misunderstanding was rooted in a lack of joy, a waning joy. Is your joy waning? Is your joy waning because Jesus isn't acting how you expect him to act in your life? Now, as human beings, we have this, this unlimited capacity for joy. And when your joy wanes, you can't help but go off on a joy hunt. You begin to uncover every rock to find some joy, but it's futile. And usually the pursuit of joy is only going to leave you empty and it's, or it's going to leave you addicted. And so we reach out, we try to grasp it, and then it vanishes into thin air. Here's what John Stott writes. John, John Stott died a few years ago. He's British. He was in his 90s. And here's what he writes. He says this. Joy and peace are not suitable goals to pursue. They are the byproducts of love. God gives them to us, not because we pursue them, but he gives them to us when we pursue him and others in love. When we forget ourselves in the self-giving service of love, then joy and peace come flooding into our lives as incidental, unlooked-for blessings. So you attack joy from the front, you'll never get it. But if you go after God, joy will be on its way. See, for John, when he let Jesus be Jesus, he found himself full of joy. But when Jesus didn't meet his expectations, then joy did wane. Isn't that true for me and you? Don't we want this joy to be stable? Well, if you want your joy to be stable, then you've got to go to the unshakable blessings that are ours because of Jesus. Here they are. There's nothing that you can do to change your status as a son or daughter. This is impossible for you to do with God as it is for me to do with my kids. They can't unchoose me as their dad. Neither can you unchoose God because he has set his affection on you. It's impossible for your sins that were once forgiven to become unforgiven. It's impossible to halt the train of redemption from reaching its destination once it's left the station. If you're on the train, you can't get off. You're guaranteed to be completely redeemed one day. Brothers and sisters, even in the midst of your suffering, even when Jesus isn't meeting your expectations, even in the midst of your relapse, in the midst of your season of depression, joy can be yours because the benefits of salvation are sure. So joy becomes a mark in your life. We saw that in John the Baptist here. We saw faith being a marker present with Mary. And now we see humility with Elizabeth. Verse 43 is worth a lot of time in meditation. Look at it. Elizabeth, uh, Mary walks in Elizabeth's front door and she asks her this question. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Do you sense Elizabeth, her sense of excitement, her sense of amazement, her sense of honor, her sense of privilege? You can smell the aroma of humility, can't you? This is what we see throughout the scriptures. 
Psalm 8 is one of my favorites. And the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? That's humility. Matthew chapter 5, the very first beatitude. Jesus is talking about what life looks like in the kingdom. And the first thing out of his mouth, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's humility. Matthew chapter 15. And there's this scene of Jesus with a Canaanite woman. And the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus for help. And she identifies herself as a dog. And she says, all I need are some crumbs. That's humility. Luke chapter 8, uh, a woman uh, has, is, has a disease and she needs Jesus to heal her. And she doesn't think that Jesus is going to give her any of his time. Even if, he, if she asked for it. He didn't think that Jesus would even touch her. Even if he knew that she was diseased. So what she did is that she reached out to touch him. And all she needed to touch was the hem of his robe. And she was healed. That's humility. The examples, I mean, they go on and on. But to be surprised that God is mindful of you. To self-identify as a dog who only needs crumbs. To lack all presumption like the woman in Luke chapter 8. This is the exact kind of humility we see in verse 43. That says, and why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Friends, this is the kind of humility that comes when Jesus enters your life. This is a real mark of gospel faith. See, God doesn't owe us anything. The fact that your eyeballs work today, I think most of yours do if they, if they don't. But the fact that any of our eyeballs work is a miracle. Um, the fact that any of us, uh, that your hearts are beating is a miracle. The fact that uh, any of us have Jesus is a miracle. But instead of responding with humility when Jesus enters your life, what do we do? We respond with pride. Zechariah. We could have read about him or, or if we had gone earlier up in, cha- in chapter 1 of Luke. But Zechariah was Elizabeth's husband, and Zechariah had this interesting encounter with, with the angel Gabriel, the same angel that Mary had an encounter with. And angel uh, Gabriel came to Zechariah and said, hey, your wife, who's advanced in years, who's been barren, that she's going to give birth, and not just to any, boy, any kind of boy, that she's going to give birth to a prophet, a prophet in the line of Elijah. And Zechariah is not just a normal Jew, he's a priest. And he's said to be blameless at this point in his life. And he responds not with faith like Mary, but he responds with doubt. And so he is stricken with being deaf and mute. And so when Mary shows up here in his house, you know he's in the room, but he can't be a part of the conversation because he's deaf and mute. He can't hear what's going on. He can't contribute to the conversation because he can't speak. And I can just see Elizabeth, can't you? Maybe if this is Vower Elizabeth, I would have said, hey, you see my good-for-nothing priests of a husband who didn't believe the angel when he showed up? Yeah, he can't talk to you, Mary. He doesn't have any idea any of this is even going on because he lacks faith. So we know that she's humble because of verse 43, but we know she's humble too because of the way in which she sees herself. She doesn't see herself as the one with faith and then there's someone else who doesn't have it. 
she's keenly aware of her need, and that's what opens her up to receive this grace of God. See, think about the gospel and the role that humility plays. Think about the incarnation. The incarnation is, is Jesus coming into the flesh. God comes to a poor girl in the middle of nowhere, born to a cattle stall, working a blue-collar profession, being a carpenter, and he doesn't even own a home. And what God does is that he squeezes himself into the limitations of, a, of human flesh. Philippians chapter 2 says that, that Jesus didn't account quality with God as something to be grasped. So if God in Christ chooses humiliation, don't you think we should too? Humility in the incarnation. Then you've got humility in the cross. In the cross, we see the sinless one dying for the sin of humanity. What sin really is, it's just, it's just us giving the middle finger to God. Saying that we know what's best. And that's what makes sin so serious. is because our sin is primarily against God. It's not against yourself. It's not against other people. It's against God first and foremost. And since he is the most valuable being in the universe, it makes sin so atrocious. Uh, several years ago, a man threw a shoe at President Bush. You guys remember this? Uh, someone threw a, a, a shoe at President Bush. Well, if you throw, uh, I don't care how much you don't like uh, the current president or any past presidents, if you throw your shoe at them, um, you get yourself promptly arrested. Now, if you threw your shoe at me, you're not going to get arrested because I'm not considered to be nearly as valuable as the president. You might have a different idea about that, but um, <laughs> the point is that the president is considered to be someone more valuable than just a normal schmo like me. But think about God. Because our sin is against him, it deserves the most severe punishment. The gruesome death of the one and only beloved son of God. And when you see your sin like that, it causes humility. How about the resurrection? Jesus is said to have been raised by, from the dead by the Holy Spirit. And the same Holy Spirit that Rose Jesus from the dead is the same one that now lives in you. And he lives in you to give you a whole new power. A power that wasn't available to you before. A power to love, a power to believe, a power to hope, and a power to obey. So if there's any remnant of good that's associated with you or with me, it should automatically be associated with the power of the Spirit. Not with your innate goodness, not with your good genes, and certainly not with your efforts. So, the humility of the Incarnation, it calls for our humility because of the descent of Jesus to fragile, weak people. The humility of the cross calls for our humility because of the love of Jesus for sinners. The humility of the resurrection calls for our humility because of the power of Jesus to powerless people. So, brother and sister, is humility a mark of your life? If so, then compliments are going to slip right off you because you're going to attribute their true source to the power of the Spirit. If humility is present in your life, you're not going to believe the good press about you. If humility is present in your life, you're thinking of God and others and you've, had, you've gained this sense of self-forgetfulness. That's humility. How about joy? 
Do the unshakable blessings of being a child of God dominate your life? Do they dominate your life to the degree that joy can remain even in the midst of trial? Or take faith. Which side of the horse have you fallen off on? You tend to be a legalist? Anxious? Judgmental? Committed to your principles? Or do you have to be an antinomian? Accept the current state of things of your heart. Bored, lacking effort. Well, friends, what we saw with all three of these characters is that these things wax and wane in their life, and they'll wax and wane in your life too. But are they present? See, faith, joy, and humility, that's what Jesus is after in your life. That's what he's up to. And may he cultivate these as we await his second coming. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would make us hungry. Lord, that we would be people who aren't satisfied with the faith and the joy and the humility that's in our lives. Lord, we want to demonstrate these, uh, not to prove to you anything. But we know that when these are present in our life, Lord, that we glorify you. So, Lord, you work these into our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen.